0: What I've been given, I would never want to leave. I am totally okay with where I'm at. I do not feel jaded. I do not feel robbed. I'm not mad at God. I just don't have that. I was very mad in the hospital that they were keeping me alive. I thought that was cruel and unusual. I was like, why won't you let me die? Come on. Um, uh, yeah, it was like, you're just letting me be tortured here. But obviously very happy that that happened to everything else. So I don't have those feelings at all. I am filled with extreme gratitude.
1: Welcome to A Better Life with Brandon Turner. That is me, where world-class guests share their wisdom on building a better life. Join me as we explore the habits, the actions, and the beliefs that have guided their journey with the aim of helping you apply those lessons to your own. We say- AJ Osborne, welcome to a Better Life with Brandon Turner. How you doing? Doing great, man. How you doing, man? This is a crazy weekend. We're here at the uh, Better Life uh, Summit, uh, real estate summit, and uh, I just got done with the keynote, so I'm uh, hyped up right now on adrenaline. So and you killed it, seriously,
0: Thanks. dude. I'm I'm always so amazed, and the event you've put on here is phenomenal thanks I man mean, i hate to say that on podcast because everybody that wasn't here now knows <laughs> they've missed out on something incredible but you should have been here because well, it thank was you.
1: you did really good i appreciate that man well let's talk about you because you're way cooler than me so i doubt that okay <laughs> so i know you aj yeah. i know you as uh let's start by your father of four i know that i know you have four amazing kids i've been to your house we've hung out you have the coolest house in all of idaho i mean uh yeah idaho mm-hmm. yeah I almost confused that with Utah, which yeah, there's, again, we David talked Green. about, yeah, David yep. Green last night was making fun of us for, what do you say? They're like two actors that look identical, but they're not. It's yes. like <laughs> Idaho and Utah. No, father of four, husband of one. I know that you've got over, I think it's at this point, 3 million square feet of self-storage. Yes. Yeah. Which is insane. You also, I mean, you been a real estate guy forever. You syndicate deals. You raise a lot of capital. I know last I heard you have seven companies, different companies, yep. tech and real estate and all sorts of stuff. That's I want to dig into that today. And, and then a lot of people might know you from your story. You had that terrible condition, experience, yeah. health challenge, <laughs> to yeah. put it lightly. Yeah. I want to dig into all that today. But before we get into that, because again, maybe some people have heard that story, maybe not, but let's go even further back. Who were you before all this success and the terrible uh, experience you went through? Who were you before that? Take us back. Before. It's a very... Big uh, yeah. question because it's like where do you yeah. kind of draw a line? I guess so
0: much of our lives are defined more around our childhood, mm. right? And mine was very much I think defined around my struggles with schooling. So before, like, I was I had ADHD. Mm. I have ADHD, and I was dyslexic. And at the time in Idaho, th- there wasn't there there wasn't like resources. Like they nobody knew what to do with me because I didn't fit into the mold that the school system provided. And uh, so I was kind of pushed to the side. It was just kind of like this thing, which drove my mom and dad nuts, Mm -hmm. but really my very protective mother who loves me dearly. And she really took the approach of you're smarter than them. You're this right. And I could see in her face, her being frustrated about my position and that she didn't know what to do because she's like, The way the system worked made me feel inferior. And I don't think it's, it's nothing that was on purpose, but they just, the way that we have the grades, the way that the school system is set up, what equals passing smart, what equals intelligence, right, is predicated on this outcome, which I couldn't do. I couldn't deliver. It's not how I was set up. So for most of my childhood and early youth, that was the dominating factor. It was that I didn't fit this and uh, I felt you know, not smart. It made me feel incredibly stupid. And I think that at the time, it was my idea to just ignore it and let my parents deal with it. But my parents were awesome because they eventually said, hey, listen, you're not really going to school anymore. You're starting to fail out. So we're going to give you an opportunity. We're going to give you an option. And that option was you can test out. And then you don't have to go to school anymore. So you can get out of this situation. And they wanted me out. My parents wanted me out of that, what I think would be considered more of a toxic thing for me to be in. And uh, they set it up and I tested out. I did really, really well. I actually went to college Mm. when I was 16. So I left high school, freshman year, went to college. And I excelled in college, went, lived on my own and uh, moved away. It was a really big move, but it it was a pretty big swing for me going from a circumstance where I think I felt like inferior, the dumb kid, everything else to being a 16 year old in college who was doing well. And then all of a sudden it was very much the opposite. And that struggle, weirdly enough, I'm almost 40, still defines a lot of me today and I don't even think, you know, you realize that kind of stuff until you're older, but I immediately knew that normal things like a normal job would not work for me. I knew that being in a structure like that. So I didn't have, I think what I, most people would view as standard options. Yeah. So I followed my dad's footsteps and he was a salesman and he would tell me all the time trying to encourage me, like you can be successful and not have a normal W2. And he's like, you can go sell and you'll earn predicated on your work like he did. And that for me was my opening. That was my way out that someone like me could be successful and that they allowed me to have an opportunity or showed me a way that wouldn't just be like, oh, you're okay, but you could even thrive.
1: And that was huge for me. So what, what is your advice, like, like during that time, the ADHD, the dyslexic? What's your advice for parents today that are in a similar situation to what your parents found themselves in? Like their kid is struggling in school for whatever reason, whether it's something like one of those things or something else, their kids are struggling. What is your advice to them? I think first, my parents, you have to ride a really fine line
0: because you can say these are your struggles. And because of that, you don't need to do work. You don't need to do school, things like that. That was not my parents' options. Yeah. The, cir- the circumstances suck. Yes, you aren't naturally... Okay, that, but that doesn't mean you get a quit. That doesn't mean you get a stop, right? You have to find another way to be successful. So we will look at alternative options. So my parents allowed me to test out and go to college, not go to well, high school yeah. anymore, right? And it's one of those things, though, where they made me feel like the problem wasn't a problem. It was who I was. That was okay. And always saying, look, though, at all these things you're good at. And in fact, it's opposite. You're gifted because you see the world differently. You're incredibly good at these other things. And so they stressed those positives, understand the negatives. And two, they didn't force me to try to be good at things like I was never going to do good, obviously, at spelling. Yeah. That's not something I was <laughs> going to pass. And that wasn't a prerequisite for me to be successful. They didn't put that pressure on me. They said, you have to work twice as hard. That's okay. You're going to work twice as hard. You're going to find another avenue and you're going to get out. So understanding, encouraging without creating a victim yeah. and saying that just because it's hard doesn't mean you, you don't get to do it. That is a really hard, fine line, I think, for parents to walk. And I mean that as a parent. Because the sympathy and the understanding and their frustration with the school system and now as a parent, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine how mad they must have been and wanting to just stick it to it and say, don't worry about them and leave, but then having to come back and tell me, you have to work within this circumstance. And that's the fine line you got to walk as a parent.
1: Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of that famous, I'm going to butcher the quote, but people talk about if they, you know, if all the animals were judged on their ability to fly, like the bear would be, you know, made fun of and said, you're inadequate. You're not good enough. But that's because a bear is not meant to fly, right? And yes. different kids are good at different things. And we oftentimes will just try to put everybody in a box and say, you need to be good at this one thing. Yeah. So trying to find that balance is it's it's, it's weird in a school system where you say, okay, you have five
0: grades on five different subjects. Two of them you failed, but the other ones, you it not only excelled, you were perfect in. Yeah. But now your overall grade's a D. yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's like you just took all your wins and said, if you fail at anything, you're failing overall. Yeah. That is not how life works. That, in fact, it's completely the opposite of how life works. But we're trained like that's true. I have to succeed at everything or else I fail at everything. Mm. That's so counterintuitive, but we're taught that from an early age. And obviously, that dislike that system a lot because it teaches, I think, very, very, incorrect principles at a very young age that shapes how you interact with the world and how you think you need to work within
1: it. And success is not predicated on you excelling at everything, and it never will be. Yeah. So do you recommend today, and now we're skipping way ahead on your story and we'll we'll backtrack in a minute, but homeschooling, private schooling, yeah. What what's kind of your view on, as a father of four kids? What are age ranges again?
0: Yeah. So like, I have a Fifteen-year-old okay. just started driving. It's crazy. Um, then I have a thirteen-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a six-year-old. Okay, just a so whole six. range there. So yes, yeah.
1: So what's your uh, what's your thought on schooling? What are you guys doing?
0: So we don't have our children in public school. My wife actually started and created a school, and uh, cool. it was predicated on a lot of these philosophies, including financial education, entrepreneurship, but also treating the kids as individuals, right? They're running different races and you're supposed to help the kid win the race. You're not supposed to say, this kid won a swimming contest, right? And you were running on the track and because he won and you didn't beat him, you failed. Like that's yeah. it's not how the race works, right? They're all running different races. We just want each one of them to be successful. Yeah. Not that one wins. That's not what school's about. So it was this idea of, it's about the children. We're customizing education so they can be successful. And I'm big on those options. One of the problems we have, though, is that's expensive. So homeschooling is the next route, which is exploding in the United States. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just growing so rapidly. And technology has put us in a position to where we can do that. So after COVID, everybody learned why d- we had to figure out how to do this with the kids at home. So if that's going to be the case, why don't we continue doing this? Or now we have options that were created, infrastructure to deliver education to kids at home that didn't exist before. And I think those trends will continue. And I think that they're good because with everyone, but especially children, we need options, yeah. more options, the better to customize,
1: making sure that they are successful. Which is an interesting way to look at education as capitalism, right? So the yes. reason that business, the more options you have, the more it forces each business to be good, to survive. And therefore, mm-hmm. that's why we, America has a great business. Yep. Uh, and a lot of communist places don't. So it's yep. funny, we treat, in America, we've always treated education as more of a communist sort of Absolutely. a situation.
0: And yes. it shows on outcome. Yeah, exactly. And so it's very clearly, yeah. you know, outcome. And, and you can look at that because people are like, well, it's not fair because kids that go to private schools have more opportunities and better outcomes. And you're like, okay, well, do you not see the problem there? The kids that can go to private schools, the reason they can is because they have options. And so when they have options, guess what? They don't choose public school. So the the goal should not be to take down other people that are successful in that realm to a one that they won't be. It's to give the other kids options, just like other people do. And the school system, you know, in the United States, I think the vast majority believe it's broken because Mm -hmm. it is our our results show it. It's fundamentally constructed. I mean, the people that built school systems I'll build prisons. Like yeah. it's, it is not a natural <laughs> way, right? And I think that people are waking up to it finally. Yeah. And I think technology plays a big role into that, which is great.
1: You yeah, know, I think it's funny is for years, homeschoolers have been called like the weird kids, right? They're, what are you gonna do about, wait, I still get because we homeschool Rosie and home, yep. like, how are you gonna socialize them? It's so important, so hard to, so, like they're gonna be weird and, and true there are homeschool families that have been weird over the past. Yeah. I've known some. But today when I look at kids and I look at Rosie who is homeschooled and then I look at the kids in public school who are still walking down the street by themselves wearing a mask and then not talking yeah. and they can't communicate with adults because they're so scared and afraid. And I'm like, who's the kids who need socializing? Rosie's here at this event right now, just like yeah. talking to grownups, yeah. walking around, plays with kids, leads kids. And I'm like, isn't it interesting how the, the script got flipped? And the homeschooler, almost every homeschool kid I know is well-adjusted, like they are talkative, they're mature, they're social beyond belief. And it's the public, so many public school kids can't seem to handle socialization anymore.
0: We, 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 I was going over some studies on exactly this, because we've been looking at creating a platform that can be given to people that homeschool their kids, Mm -hmm. my wife, to educate on these courses and things that she's done. So he can go out to the mass market. And one of the questions that I had was that, is that really true? And they found that it's actually the opposite. Homeschool kids are actually more apt in social settings than the public school. It's yeah. reversed from what the narrative yeah. has become or thought. And if you think about it, it makes no sense. You need 3000 people to socialize. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how socializing works. Yeah. We, we, you can't even do that. Yep. You're all of a sudden, it's the opposite. It's not intimate. Yep. You do not have good one-on-one conversations, your socialization is hurting cattle now, and uh, where you're talking about a small group of people. So for a child to have 10 kids that they're around on average, how much more socialization do they need? That doesn't make sense. And so I think that's another thing people have been waking up to, just like you just said. I see it. We all see it.
1: That narrative's dying yeah, because it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. From a conspiracy theory side, it makes you like, I don't believe this, but it's almost interesting to think the government seems to very much want people in public school. Yes. There's a question on why that is. I, you know, we can, yeah. we can get there. But uh, the government does not seem to love homeschooling no. um, in no, any they, way. They fight it at yeah. all. Homeschooling and private school they fight. Yeah.
0: So our kids in public school, I pay for schooling twice. I have to pay for the public schooling yeah. taxes. I have to pay for my kids to go there. Now you would think that doesn't make sense because the kids aren't draining any resources. So why should I have to pay for the public school system, right? But the public school system is not paid on outcome. It's paid on heads and seats. That's why you miss seven days and you fail. What? What if you're getting straight A's? That makes no sense at all. No, No, it has to do with, if you miss more than this, we don't get money. So we're going to force you into it or what? we're going to ruin your life by failing you out of school. And so- Everyone knows it and you can see it, that the school system's incentives, whether it was, you know, conspiracy planned or just it's that's the nature of the beast, which I think that's largely what happened. It's the nature of the beast, like communism and everything starts out with this great idea. But then when you do not have ideas that are forcing change, you've created a system, the largest and strongest union in America is the teachers. union. They are so powerful and they are there to protect their jobs and to protect the teachers. So the most powerful union in the United States is to protect teachers, not children. Yeah. <laughs> it is not yeah. there to protect the children. Yep. That says a lot about our school system, if you think about it. And it's like, obviously I love teachers, right? My wife yep. has a school. We see that they're powerful, they're important. But the teachers are hired and we're here to serve the children, yep. not the other way around. And there is all the incentives within the school system are not predicated on that. It is not based upon individual outcomes. It's based upon aggregates. So you can lose kids and it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, right? And you don't need outcomes to get funding. You don't need those things. And in fact, parents are problems. Parents need to be kept away so we can do our job. That is something we fundamentally disagree with. You need to integrate parents into kids' lives. The idea that parents have too much time in kids' lives or have too much control or power, that's crazy to even think about, first of all, because it's not true. They're at school all the time. I mean, with my kids, even in school, I get such limited time with them. And the idea that we shouldn't be involved in their schooling, everything should go the opposite way. We should be trying to integrate parents into kids' lives more. So it's a very interesting dynamic that's been created in the United States where, the students are products and the parents are problems. And that's that's not a good place
1: to be in because the only thing we should care about is the outcome of the kid. A friend of mine told me a story recently how they their kid was going on a field trip. And so they put an air tag in like the kids like shoe or backpack or something to track them to know where they're going. And the teacher found out about it and the parent got in trouble. Like when I mean, yeah. you got like the teacher, like, You don't have a right to find out where your kid's going. You need to trust us as a school. And I'm like, that yeah. is insane. It's insane. Insane. It's like uh, and there's the narrative I keep hearing in politics today. And it's, it's interesting how it seems to be, again, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here. It yeah. might not be organized in any way. Maybe it's just a, a trend, but this idea of like the children are America's children. Like they're yes. all our children. We need to stop thinking of them as our, like, they're yes. not my kids. Absolutely. They're our kids. They're I'm like, our no, kids. they're my kids. They're, my kids. they're, my kids. they're, they're my not your kids. kids. Exactly. Absolutely. And I'm like, let's together. And I don't know, again, maybe not organized, maybe it is, but there's this feeling of we... Well, there is a sense though of organization where it's
0: this idea that we know what we want to teach and we're going to teach this and we have outcomes that we want. If you are against it, it doesn't matter what side, it doesn't matter anything, you're against what we're trying to do. And so they set up rules and laws in place that say, we have to inform parents of certain things and not other things. So a perfect example of this is, okay, There were laws that set up that like sex ed, we have to inform what we're talking about to parents, right? But we don't have to do that in other categories. So let's move the things we're talking about here into other categories. Mm -hmm. So they actively are trying to make sure that parents aren't integrated in. I just don't see how that is ever a good thing. It's that the parents should be integrated more, not less. And I get that they may say, well, that causes problems and not all parents are good. I'm totally aware of that. I'm totally aware that not all parents are great citizens that are actually good for the children and that there are circumstances where the child needs to be taken away from the parents. It's horrific. It's bad. But that is not the aggregate and that is not how we should plan a society. And if that would have been me, I would have been lost. It was only because of my parents that the school system did not destroy me. Mm. That's it. If they would not have been active, if they wouldn't have been outrageously proactive and and gone to extremes where they're just like, hey, you can even leave. You can do we can we will figure this out. We'll create other opportunities for them. I would have been destroyed. The school system would have spit me out. I would have failed. I would have stopped going. I would have had no other options, right? And I would have left feeling beyond worthless and that I had no value, right? So my parents were the ones that allowed that to happen. The school system had no incentive to do that for me. They didn't care. Nobody was trying. There was no one there to help. And you look at that and you go, "That's it's fundamentally backwards. And I think that's why right now we have something like 20% of the United States no longer is using public schools as an option. 20%, you go back five plus years ago, it was like, or 10 years ago, it was like 6%. And that number is rapidly rising. And we've had a big shift and people are like, I want to be more integrated with my kids. I want to help. I want to know what's going on. I want to participate. And I do question things. And my kid is not a cattle, right? That's not how this works. And I need to do what's best for them, not what's best for the school system.
1: And that's how it should be. Yeah. Did you see that, uh, Oh, we're gonna need a little political here, but I like this. Uh, it was it was so funny to watch. Ron DeSantis did a news, uh, you know, a press conference or whatever, and he was showing a book that they were teaching their kids in school. Like all the kids had, like, yeah. this is their book, whatever. And he shows it on the screen and reads what the book says, and the news blurted out and they wouldn't air it. Yeah. Yes. Their adult news Will didn't think air. it was appropriate to yeah. show it. And they're showing it to like fifth grade kids. And he was like, there's something wrong here. Like yes. what are, what are we doing? It's and uh what? to that it had to be found out. Yes. Yeah. And you look at this,
0: what kills me is that the parents that don't have an option because they need two working households. So you have both parents at work. They can't homeschool their kids. They can't do private school. They are left to the, whatever happens and they have no control over it their kids spend vastly more time in that system than they ever do with them. Yeah. So those parents are left almost hopeless. It's just, they're just losing their children. Yeah. And that's, and two, once again, even if we talk, it's weird that this has become a political lightning rod because it the facts of the matter, you should know what you, where your kids are, what they're learning, and you should have options that are best for them. How is that political in any yeah. way, shape, or form? I don't understand that. That should be, Completely universal that we should agree on. We should all be trying to put the kids first and help them
1: and integrate the parents more. So, what is your advice for people who maybe they can't homeschool? There is no maybe they can't homeschool job wise, income wise. They can't private school because their state doesn't you know subsidize or they are they can't afford it. They have to do public school, which is still majority of Americans. Majority of Americans. What do those parents do? So first of all,
0: you can't just sit back, meaning that when you are with your kids, it is the most important today to spend time teaching your kids, telling them the values, working with them so they understand your belief systems, that they understand how you believe in them, what they need, and that you are fostering that within them. So then if they go to school and they either feel like they're being left behind, that they're stupid, that they're being taught things that you don't believe in or don't agree with or want. They have something to challenge that. Kids need to know that it's okay to challenge ideas and that they need to, when they get home, you need to be that foundation. But a lot of times we get so busy in life It's just, okay, they go off, they're playing video games or whatnot, I go to, so you're not even counterbalancing it. And they also need to know that they can talk to you. A lot of people don't understand the largest system of child abuse in the United States is the school system. Mm. And so much of that goes unreported. It's shocking, which people, it makes sense because you're aggregating kids. So where would... People that are predators things go where the kids are, right? That's how it works. You need to have a very open conversation with your children. They need to be able to stand up for themselves to adults. They need to understand when they should be able to say no and that you back them, that that's okay. You can tell adults no if they're trying to do things that are inappropriate. You don't need to simply accept all the ideas that are presented to you by an authoritative figure. And that's good for society. That's not just about yeah. your kids. That is good for society. But you have to bring that into your home. You have to reinforce your beliefs. You have to reinforce your overall belief in them and that you support them and that you're always here. It's okay if they fail. And it doesn't matter that you got one bad grade. And because that's
1: that's not the determiner of success. That's yeah. not how it works. All right. One more question on the kid thing and then we'll move on. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> All right, let's do it. <laughs> how do you, as a, now as a as a parent of kids over a, a wide range, so your oldest, I'm sure, has an idea what's going on. Yeah. The youngest probably doesn't. So you've gone through that transition, and you are going through it. How do you talk to your kids about sex?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm married, so I have a great wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let so her. let her do it. So honestly, though, that has been my wife is really I, I I'm kind of shocked and amazed how proactive she's been. There's no time that is too early to be talking to your children about pornography, Mm -hmm. about sex, what's inappropriate, and it should be talked about and repeated all the time. Mm -hmm. And obviously you talk about it differently to a (laughs) two-year-old than you would a 15-year-old, right? But that should be an open dialogue that they understand they're going to have repeatedly. So it's not foreign. It's not this thing like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just talked about pornography in front of me. If you're having the conversation a lot, they should be aware of it. The fact of the matter is your children will be exposed to pornography Guaranteed. and it will be really early. They've already been exposed and you don't even know it. Yep. And we're they're seeing now that you're talking about nine and under is where kids are first exposed to this. So the conversation needs to happen super early. It needs to happen a lot. Now, the principle that my wife has taken is that it is not a bad thing as in that you don't like, we never want them to be ashamed and we never want them like, you're going to encounter this stuff. You're going to have questions. It's okay. You're not in trouble. You need to talk to us. Right. And you need to stand up for yourself. If you feel that something's inappropriate and we will always back you for that. So we have their back. We want them to feel that support. We want to have that conversation be continual and that that way the comfort level and they can come talk to us about it. And when they encounter it, when they encounter these things, when they're dating, right, that they have a knowledge and that they can feel confident in approaching those subjects. So they can make decisions that are for them, that they are comfortable with, and that if they're not, they can say no, they can state it, and they can also come back and talk to you about it. It's hard for a lot of parents because it's hard for me. Yeah. So yeah. it's different, I think, as husband or whatnot, but my my wife's amazing, and, and I agree. We I mean, we start as early as it gets, yep. talking to the kids about pornography, talking to the kids yep. about what's inappropriate, what's not, what to do if you see it, yeah. and uh, who you should talk to us about, tell us, and that they'll never be in trouble yeah. ever if they come and talk to us about something that happened that they even view as inappropriate. Yeah, That's fine. You're not in trouble for that. Please tell us. We don't want anything like abuse to be happening and they feel that they can't tell us because yeah. they would get in trouble. That's just one line we don't we don't want to
1: cross. Yeah. Somebody recently told me, I can't remember what it was, maybe it was on the show, but they they said how they have a, a rule with their kids. It said since they were little kids is like, if you ever hear a phrase out in public or a concept or a situation, like you always have a safe space to talk about with mom and dad, we will never, never. be upset or make yes. you feel weird about it everything is on the table all the time. time. And from the time they're little, they enforce that over and over and over and over. And yeah, so the kid grows up just knowing like, I don't wanna throw my parents under the bus here. My parents are amazing. But I was always embarrassed to talk to them about anything. My parents didn't even know. Like we, none of my siblings ever told any other sibling. You know, they're all the same age, basically. We never told anybody who we liked crushes wise. My parents never knew. I mean, there was zero of any of that. It was super shameful to even say I liked a girl. So we didn't talk about it. And I want, I want that to be opposite with my kids though. Well, a lot of people, I think to our parents' credits, because I think that's the vast majority. Yeah. When talking to
0: people, they're like, oh, they'll figure it out. And I go, okay, now hold on. You say that, but you have to remember when we were kids, if I wanted to go find or look at pornography, I had to go purchase a magazine, <laughs> yes. which I couldn't purchase yep. because I wasn't of legal age. Yep. That's it. There was no other means yeah. to do that. Now, a friend may have gotten one from somewhere that you see, but someone had to do that transaction. Yep. And that was a physical thing that had to be passed around, right, and carried. Astronomically limited. Yeah. The dating was very controlled. There was no online messaging. Yep. There was no Snapchat. There was no picture and video sharing. It was courting. Yeah, I knew who I had to go. My parents knew who I was going out on a date with. Yep we had to go pick them up. Their parents knew it was a a very controlled environment. So there was, and honestly, I don't think ever in their imagination would they have ever believed that under 14 or 15, you would even see pornography because they're like, how, how would you even see it? So today it's could not be more opposite. You will see it. You're going to see it before you're 15. That's basically a guarantee. And to act like they won't you put shame in it and make it. So I think yeah. the circumstances are different and we have to treat it differently because of even if your parents, they could default to that. That's what
1: I'm saying, right? Yep. They could default to it and it was okay.
0: Yeah, We do not have an ability to default to not having open discussions about it anymore.
1: Yeah, if I could summarize your thoughts here, it's like, you know, this whole discussion is like, parents need to not is abdicate. Is that the word I'm looking for? Like, they, yeah. like their education, the, the talk about sex, like any, like yeah. our kids are our kids. And just because somebody else might be teaching them in a school or whatever, it is still our responsibility. Like they're and always and always would be. Yeah. Absolutely. And I understand that people say,
0: you know, some kids don't get that talk at yeah. home, so they need to be talked about that at school. And it's like, okay, it's not that I disagree with that or anything else, but at the same time, there should never be a circumstance to where I don't know yeah. what you're talking about when you're talking about sexual issues mm-hmm. to a child. And the fact that people are trying to make it so parents can't know about that alone makes me say, why? Why do you want to talk to children about these things and not
1: have their parents know or find out? That is so scary and so dangerous. In a similar way, we've got an entire billion-dollar social media app like Snapchat, and a lot of them have the same feature, but we have a social media app created by adults, grown-up people, that's targeted to children that is designed to send secret pictures that are deleted. How, are, as a society, do we not go, wait a second, what, what are we doing here? What Let's, are we doing? Like, what are we Why? doing? This, Why is that there a is, thing? Yeah, th- there's something happening here that's not good. It's like, not good. There is not. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. Uh, uh, move yeah. it from the screen to in person.
0: Yeah. So you know that your child goes out for three hours Every night, downtown, in dark alleyways, and your 13-year-old girl is going to have interactions and meet with men that are trying to talk to her that could be anywhere from 30 to 80 years old. Would you do that? No. (laughs) Then why do you do it on a screen? Uh Why do you let that happen? It's not as dangerous. How is it not as dangerous? Because interactions on screen turn into real-life interactions. And uh, I think people need to look at it like that. Your kid's screen is just like it is... In person.
1: And we're not saying it's easy to do that. Like none of this is easy, but parents oftentimes like, yeah, well, this is hard. I can't really stop my kid from you know using Snapchat. Therefore, I'm gonna do nothing. It's like like anything's better than nothing. My kids have phones. Yep. So my older ones do. Yeah. We
0: have full access to them. We control them. We can see them. But it is our job to teach them how to use them, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, so they don't find out on their own. And they do not get unfiltered access. They do not get social media. That, once again, I'm not letting my kid go downtown to dark alleyways to talk to adults. I would never allow them to do that on their screen. But we are introducing those things to them. So there are certain apps that kids are using that are specially designed for children, only children. And you have to ease into it. And you have to train them and teach them. Because regardless, they will get a phone. Yep. They need to know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, that they can come talk to us if they see anything, which we've had our kids come do. Walked in, I opened up, I was scrolling on this, this popped up. Like I, I don't it's okay. Hey, let's talk about it. I wonder where this came from. Yeah. Right. And you just you gotta have those open conversations now. Cause you're right. You can't hide it. Yeah. But you that doesn't mean you just say, Yeah, go for it. Go run around downtown and we don't care. Yeah. Like <laughs>
1: Crazy world we live in. All right, let's move. Let's move on. I want to go back to your story, but first, as part of the show, uh, you know we have a sponsor every week or multiple ones, but all the ad revenue for the show for each episode to- goes toward a charity of the guest choosing. So, I'm curious, what charity or what mission or what uh, purpose uh, would you want the revenue going toward, and why for this show? Chair of Hope. Chair um, of Hope. Yep. Okay, tell me about Chair of Hope. So, I was uh, in the hospital, and
0: I would become a quadriplegic. And on Christmas Eve, after being months in the hospital, I got off life support. They sent me to all these hospitals and a long-term care facility. And then I went to a rehab facility. And on Christmas Eve, I was visited by a gentleman in a wheelchair and his family. And they sang to me. Mm -hmm. And he told me that when he became a quadriplegic, he was alone on Christmas Eve. And he didn't want anyone to ever have that happen to them. And so we became friends. And um, him and his family were great. And they started a charity called Chair of the Hope where they take wheelchairs to people in third world countries that literally don't leave their bed because they have no transportation. Yeah. They have no way to get around. Family members carry them. And they go to these impoverished communities and they get these huge, they ship in giant shipping containers and then they go out they build the wheelchairs and they give them out to all these impoverished communities to all these people that are paralyzed and can't work whether that's elderly whether that's young so that these people can have mobility and people say oh that's nice that's a really good thing if you haven't been in the situation to where you cannot be mobile on your own it's really hard to understand what that wheelchair is or does When I finally had enough strength and I could get into my wheelchair, it was like getting access to life. Mm. I could, little things, go to the bathroom. I could leave my bed to go talk to somebody. The amount of independence is not even, like, it's hard for us to even grasp what that means. It is giving someone life. And so we became very passionate uh, about that. We actually traveled and we helped deliver wheelchairs and,
1: and help oh, them. Cool. And so, yeah, that's, it's probably the charity. of choice oh, for me. that's, I've never once in my life thought about how wheelchairs are a, a wealthy country, uh, solution yeah. and B all of human history has not had them probably. Either. I mean, like, I'm sure yeah. the wealthy people figured out ways to make them, but like all of human history, very recent. yeah, have not had them. Yeah. Crazy. I've never yeah. thought about that before. Yeah. Death sentence,
0: yeah. basically. Yeah. And even if you don't die, your life is, you're sitting on a bed, people deliver, yep. you never leave, yeah. you don't go anywhere, you don't have any control over anything, yeah. you can't use the bathroom, you can't, I mean, yeah, that's your life, sitting in a corner in a dark, hot hut on a bed. And so like, these are like industrial grade, like wills, so they can go on dirt and they can move around and people can put them in to push it. in. so it's uh, absolutely amazing. The family's uh, an incredible family
1: that has been doing this for a long time. Very cool, man. Well, we will be sure to donate the profits from this episode or the revenue from this episode to that. Hey, this is a quick ad for wealthier people, like millionaires and those people making a few hundred grand a year or more. If that's not you, feel free to click that little skip ahead 15 second button and get on with the show. But for those of you who are still here, I want to let you know that I wrote my first piece of, we'll call it fiction. That's actually not that tall of a tale. It's like a short ebook I wrote. It's called How to Invest $100,000 in real estate with no toilets, tenants, or trauma. And it's really just designed to showcase in kind of a story format, the difference between being an active landlord and a passive investor and to really help you make the best choice for your future and the future of your family so get it today at odcfund.com slash 100k that's odcfund.com slash 100k so take us from you were in college that you a young age yep and what came next and how did you get to i can't walk yeah so funny how life works so after college i followed in my
0: father's footsteps and I sold insurance, and I loved it. Life insurance, property insurance? So uh, group medical mainly. Okay. So medical health insurance, and we worked with companies and their healthcare dollars, and we tried to lower their healthcare premiums, and we managed their money, and we would uh, like do self-funded dollars, we would act as the underwriters, and we looked at risk evaluating of that capital because instead of using the insurance company, they did all of it. They kept the premium, right? And they split out the risk. They used an insurance company as a TPA. So we would work with these companies to to do this. And it was an ability for me to have a job where I could earn my own money and I was paid for my work, which I loved. I wasn't, my time was my time. If I wanted to make more money, I sold. And if I didn't sell, I didn't make money. And that was very liberating to me. And my dad was incredible. He showed me how to do it. He gave me that opportunity, right? Now, as we went forward, the amazing part of it is also the downside of it is that it's astronomically tied to your time, more so even than a W-2 from the standpoint that if you don't not only do it, but you have to perform at a certain level or you lose it. So our income was always fluctuating massively. I'd lose a big client, 35% of my income, gone. And so we were like, we need to offset, we need to create wealth. That got us into looking at storage. And we thought mainly like, oh, that would be a retirement plan, right? We'd buy it. We liked storage a lot because it was more of a business to me than anything. I understood cash flow. I understood when you're a salesman, you're at like the point of the spear in the business world. So that revenue and expenses operating on cash flow. My dad used to say at five o'clock, all our assets go home and we hope that they come back the next day because if they didn't, we're done, we're out of business, right? It was that kind of world that you lived in. And it was, it can start to get stressful when you start to have kids. And for me, even looking at my dad, I was like, what am I going to do with you? How am I going to retire you? Because if you're not working, your clients aren't paying you, then how are we going to, it just, it, it, it became what was this amazing thing became a treadmill, as I called it. And we had to run, but we weren't going anywhere. And uh, that was very concerning. Real estate was great. I didn't understand it at all, though. Self-storage was the merger of the two worlds. I could affect the revenue. We could do all the business things that we were good at doing, but we still got the benefit of real estate. We got the real assets. We owned the revenue, which in our other business, we didn't own that revenue. It was somebody else's. We just got a piece of it, right? Right. We own the revenue. We own the asset. It created wealth and income that would go on forever. So we liked that as a middle. It lent to our skills, and we started to do that. So as time went on, we got out of insurance. We were doing self-storage, and we sold our firm. And then I was working for me and my father. We're both working for big national companies, a big national company. the second biggest in the world. And they had golden handcuffs on us, which was really good. And life was great. So I was running the operations and we were selling, we were
1: doing our thing, we were investing. That was on the, like you're working for national insurance. Yes, got rid of your own, now you work for a big company. Yep. And you're still got some self-storage going on the side. And we got self-storage going
0: on on the side we we were trying to do. So we were doing kind of both things. The national company was awesome. They paid us really well. Those golden handcuffs, they they get us, right? So it, it was just like the top of the top. It was like, wow, I'd made it. So this is a long time. So we're not talking about like three years, right? So I'm now, this is now early thirties. And it was just this amazing position to be in. I felt like I, I had made it. I would started up some companies on the side and i just killing it, right? You're just on top of the world. And out of nowhere, one day my legs stopped working, just stopped. I went into the bathtub because I was really hurting. I had a lot of pain and we thought I was sick. We didn't really know what was going on. That day, I'd been out planting trees, just normal life out in the backyard doing stuff, right? I'd just gotten back from traveling for the company that I worked for. And I got in the bathtub to try to make my legs feel better. And I went to get out and I, my legs didn't work. My wife had to come get me out of the tub, went to the hospital, and nobody could figure out what was going on. They didn't know what was wrong. And uh, I sat in a little room and and the paralysis kept going up. It kept getting worse. Finally... They thought they'd figured out what it was. They transferred me to a bigger hospital because at the time, they think they knew they didn't really fully let us in on what was what was happening. But the paralysis took over my body. And that meant that I stopped being able to breathe and to do anything. So I was put and hooked to life support. And I was on that life support in the ER for weeks. And there was no exit date. So there was no time in which I would get better. So they sent me out of the hospital system and they sent me to somewhere. It's called an LTAC, a long-term care facility. And that's for people that have to be on medical equipment, but they don't, there's no checkout date. And so that's where I went to stay and to be. And um, in there, um, you were, you were aware, right? I mean, fully, you were fully-, fully aware. I couldn't speak. I communicated through blinking and I had plastic sheets that I would look at pictures to try to communicate with people on what was going on. I was in incredible amounts of pain 24/7. My entire nervous system had been destroyed and my nerves were telling my body we've basically been blown up. So I was on fentanyl, methadone, oxy, morphine and they couldn't stop the pain. Wow. So I was on so much pain drugs my wife was like you have to give him more to stop he's in so much pain. They're like we'll kill him. He'll die. We can't. There's nothing we can do. And so the first, uh, I don't even remember how long it was, probably month, the only time I slept is when I passed out from the pain. So I would just get, it would just be too much. I'd pass out and that's how I'd rest, but I didn't sleep. And uh, in the LTAC, as time went on, we finally got to a point where there's a metric by the pressure in which your lungs can move to breathe, to sustain your body. And uh, negative is actually good. So let's say you, me, today, right? Negative like 35 is great. Zero is dead. I was at negative one for months and they finally got an inclination that it like went up to like negative two and they were like, oh man, we're, things are going good. We're on the right path now. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll get them off the ventilator and uh, that went on slowly. So it like clicked up, but then went away and then I was back down to zero And I just stayed on life support and they took care of me every day. They would roll me over to bathe me. They'd wash me with rags and scrub me down and then roll me back over. I couldn't move anything. I was paralyzed from the eyes down. I could see towards the end of my bed and I could move my head from side to side. I could not talk. I could not eat nothing. And I was actually fired from my job when I was in the hospital. Oh, geez. And uh, there goes the golden handcuffs. Yep, there man. were the golden handcuffs. And uh, so, I, in fact, they, you know because where they fired me everything, I didn't have to get paid my bonuses, all I, yep. all that good stuff too. So I was let go, which, I mean, we hear that and it's like horrifying. It's like, what could they do with things like that? Now, now, to put it into perspective here, they were paying me though already for like two months. And I, obviously, there was no... Yep. Go- we didn't even know if I was going to leave the hospital. Yep. There was no like you're going to go back to work. So I don't mean to just like bash on them or anything else like that, but it's shocking, right? My income is gone. My wife, we had just had our fourth child, Theo, who's now six. He was an infant, four months, and she now has four kids, an infant, and a husband that's quadriplegic in the bed, on life support, not even at home or anything. And I lost my job, so. As time went on, my body, there was nothing they could do for me. There was no medicine that would make it better. Nothing. Did did they find out what it was? I'm like, yes, it's called Guillain-Barre. And Guillain-Barre is where your white blood cells, something triggers it and your white blood cells turn for some reason. They don't know why, but your white blood cells think that your central nervous system is the thing that they're attacking. So they get confused. So something comes in, they say, we've got to attack this bad thing. Then it, for some reason, thinks that the nervous system is that. It goes, it's everywhere. So it starts producing white blood cells at like a hundred times. And then your white blood cells eat your central nervous system. And it destroys what are called the myelin sheaths. Those are sheaths that go around just like a telephone wire. So telephone wires have plastic sheaths. If they don't, signals will not go through. They destroyed all my myelin chiefs, and they stopped any signals from going to my brain to the rest of my body. There's nothing they can do to heal it. There's nothing they can do to make it better. It's, we will keep you alive, and we hope that your body will come back. And so that's what they did. They just kept me on tubes and hoped that it would get better. And then I started to be able to breathe after months. So funny story. I was in the hospital, and They were like, we get to lower your cuff. It's it's something called a cuff that's in, in the tube that goes into my throat. And that allows the air to go through the tube, which keeps my lungs moving. And if they change the cuff, it stops the air from going down in and will allow it to go up into my mouth, which would allow me to talk. So they said, AJ, it's now been months. You have enough strength that we think we can give you a few seconds to say something. So my wife, my baby was there. And my family, and it was like, You're gonna talk for the first time after this horrible being put into a coma and just disappearing. So I knew I was like, Okay, you know, it, it was emotional for them and everything. And and so they got ready and they told me right out of the gate, they were like, AJ, you're gonna sound weird. Your vocal cords haven't been active. Yeah. You're not gonna sound normal. So I thought, okay, thought about it. And they came and they flipped my cuff and I looked up at my infant son who was We called him my therapy baby because my kids, we didn't bring them in for a long time because we didn't even know if I was going to live. So we didn't know what to say. And the kids were young. We didn't want, we weren't sure how to handle it. So he would lie on my pillow next to me and he was the only interaction I had with my children. And I would move my lips and he would play with his hands on my lips. And that was everything to me. Everything. When he came in, it was, it's all I cared about. I just wanted him to be there so I could see my baby. So I looked straight at him right out of the gate. And I looked at him and I said, Dio, I am your father because I thought I would sound like Darth Vader. Yeah. So I thought it would be funny. And then I looked and I smiled and looked over at my wife and I said, just kidding. We don't know who the dad is. <laughs> and um, then they turned the cuff and shut it off. Uh, so I thought it was funny. Um, I don't think my wife uh, and everybody thought it was as uh, funny. There, were n- No, no, thank you. I love you so much. Thank you for keeping me alive. No, it was, it uh, was, was, it was, you know, I'm your father. And uh, no, just kidding. We don't know who the dad is. So that's, a, that was <laughs> the first time that I said anything after these
1: months of my wife going through hell. So uh, you, you kept your sense so, of humor yeah. through this, but yes. uh, what was your mental state at, like when you're going through all that pain, all that trauma, like, were you just bored sitting there? Were you thinking about your future? Were you sad? Were you angry? Were you mad at God? Like, I mean, what, where yeah. were you at? So very interesting what
0: happened. The range of emotions, obviously, yes. One of the worst things ever was the pain. It created a 24-7 hell that would never leave. My body was crushed on fire 24-7. And obviously not even being able to move. I just had to sit there and deal with it. One thing I never thought about, I think most, most people don't, is I lost my senses. So I had my sense of sight I don't even know if I could smell, but I couldn't touch. I couldn't write anything else. And we know we're sitting on earth because your feet send messages to your brain. Well, what happens is when you lose your senses and you're sitting in a bed in a room that has no windows and beeping, your brain doesn't know how to understand the world that it's in. This is something called ICU delirium. And ICU delirium can happen to anybody in the ICU, but when you were in my position, it's like that times a hundred because my body couldn't make grips of reality. So my brain would interpret situations and it would build them out as a way to understand the world. It's a little hard to kind of describe, but let's say this. I'm lying in the hospital hooked to tubes You come in and I see you and smile and you come talk to me and show me a thing. And I'm looking around the room, seeing people, what they're doing and everything. And you happen to say, because this actually happened, we just went to Japan. My brain hears Japan. And then they may say some other things. Well, the room starts to turn into something different. Mm -hmm. And it became Japan or the location that they were talking about. My brain didn't get a hold of the pain and why I was having it. So... For a lot of the times, my nurses, my brain, the only way you could understand it was I was being tortured and they were the people torturing me. Mm. So I thought I was either in a cave when it was dark with lights, uh, like lights flickering, and they had me strung up. And when they came in and interact, I would beg them to stop and I would scream in my head and they would be moving, taking care of me. But every time they touched me, the pain was so horrific. That it was, I thought they were burning me, scalding me and breaking my legs, things like that. So that lovely scenario went on for a long time. And then it would come in and out. My brother left Hawaii, actually. He was here studying. My brother Trevor called him up and said, Taylor, you need to get home to see AJ now. Like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Now leave because they didn't know if I was going to live. So he got on plane left. And then he actually never left the hospital. He, he would stay, he left the hospital, but he he didn't ever come back. He would stay with me every night and somebody would stay with me every day. And when his job, what he would do is he would grab my face and he would bring me back, say, no, we're right here. This is what's happening. And he would describe. So my brain could understand what was really happening, that it wasn't, I wasn't being tortured. As that started to come off and wear off, and I was better able to understand the world around me, every little thing that happened was so incredible, I didn't really know how to be upset, meaning that it was complete fight or flight. So like it's funny even seeing the videos, but anytime I would do anything, it was just incredible. So the first time that I got to speak, the first time that I moved my finger, and it was like, I was just so excited. It was just, oh, this is incredible. And it was little teeny milestones. I honestly thought that I'd been in the hospital for years. Mm. I didn't know it. I'd only been in there for four months. I had no concept of it. So every little thing, it was like coming back from the dead. And it was just incredible. People would cheer when I would take a drink. And it was like, I was a two-year-old again, yeah. right? Like, good job. You used the potty. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> uh, so it was this hell to then all of a sudden ecstatic something happened. And I loved my nurses. And so the only way that I felt I could control the situation, because everybody was so horrified, was that I tried to make them feel comfortable, which is weird. But I I really tried to make, I'm okay. Don't worry about me, right? Like, oh, look at that. And tried to joke with people and stuff when I wasn't in too much pain, but it was survival mode. My brain would play tricks on me and It wasn't actually until a lot later date that I think I really had to come to grips with what had just happened. Yeah. And in fact, the hardest part was when nothing was wrong. That was the hardest part. What do you mean? So the hardest part of dealing with it was when I finally got out of my, I went from the hospital, home, wheelchair, to leg braces and walking help, And then once I got out of leg braces, I just had help walking, which started out as like uh, arm braces that would help me walk, and then to a cane. And then once I lost the cane, after all the physical parts of me left, I was still left with the pain and I was still left with all these other problems, but I looked normal. It was at that time when I could start to live more of a normal type life that it was like, what just happened? It, because everything else it was so much i had a goal i had something i could think about i'm going to take a step i'm going to do something and it was just all my focus right it was just you can do this you can you you can do this when it stopped that's when it hit me and that was massively overwhelming it was just like what what just happened and that was years later years Then I had for the first time where I'd been dropping my drug intake, so my pain meds had always been going down because I was getting better. And then I'd hit about a year ago and I couldn't go down anymore. And uh, it was at that point they were like, I left rehab, rehab was like, Hey, AJ, you can keep coming, but. You're not getting better. And I was like, I'll show you, which I did. I went, I got out of my leg braces. I got out of my arm stuff. I actually walked on my own, which they didn't think I could happen. And I did that not being in rehab. Um, And then a year later after that, my med stopped. And I'm like, no, I can overcome this. I can still do it. And so I tried. I tried to get off the medication and just push through the pain. Mm. But it was so bad, I stopped being able to do anything. I just stay in bed. So I had to go back on the normal regimen. I'd never gotten off the pain meds. I was still on it, just not as high as a dose. It was at that time that was the first time in years that I was not progressing. And that shattered me because then it was like, you're going to be like this forever. You're not moving forward. There's no goal anymore. Live with it. And it it taught me a lot about life and how for me, even when it comes to money, everything else, the goal is progress. I want to be better next year than I am this year. If we can have something to look forward to and progress We can get through so much. We can do so much. But that feeling of, no, it's done. There's nothing you can do. Somebody robbed something deep inside of me that was so necessary for me to be a normal functioning human, it's hard to even describe. they take away my hope. They took away my future. They took away anything that I thought that I may become or do. And it was at that moment that it was the hardest. It wasn't in the wheelchair dealing with the pain. That was a different kind of hard. That was just bawling, crying because of pain and like really horrific stuff. It's, it, it sounds awesome, like oh yeah, you came back and you did great. Now you're walking stuff. So it's not pretty. It's mm-hmm. it's not fun. It's not a hero's journey. I don't feel like it is. It's not like people are like oh you overcame this, you did this, and it's like it's not like you make it sound like I set a goal to climb a mountain and I did it. That's not what happened. I tried not to die. Yeah. I, it wasn't like I'm in a Rocky movie where it was like run up the stairs. No, I, vomiting. I'm vomiting. I mean, I can't function. I can't do things. My wife's carrying me from a wheelchair. It was not pretty. It was. So then I had this massive guilt about people even being proud of me. And it was like, what are you proud about? Like, why, why is this a good, why do you think that this is something that I did good or noble? And so it was actually when it was kind of done. And I was left with the pieces. That was probably the hardest part.
1: Mm.
0: Where are you at now with that? So I uh, have not progressed. I'm still on pain meds, but I can walk on my own. So people, I don't think, would know that anything was wrong if they saw me. I don't have my leg braces, which are great. If I want to hike, if I want to go on unsturdy ground, things like that, I need to put leg braces on. I can't run. My lower legs are still partially paralyzed, so I don't have movements in them. And I am dictated every day by drugs. So I live my life in three-hour increments that are predicated on me taking medicine. I have to carry it around with me everywhere. I have endless models of pills to try to make sure that I can walk, that I can function, that I can be normal. It never takes away the pain fully. That's never happened. I wake up every single morning due to pain. I've never, I don't sleep in. I don't wake up and like, what a beautiful morning. I wake up, I try to get out of bed and I try to get my pills. Then I try to maneuver to the bathroom where I can sit in the tub and try to get my legs to start working because they like freeze up. It's like they revert back. And then after that, I get ready, go to work, go start doing all the things, but I'm not a lot of help around the house. My wife's basically shouldered, you know, a lot of that. And there's sometimes where it's just like, I shut off. It's like, I'm done. I can't, I, I'm short because of the the pain, which I, I hate. You, you know, as a parent, when you're short over something, you just feel bad when yeah. it's not their fault, right? Or anything else like that. So it's now a constant thing of trying to live on that roller coaster ride while still being successful yeah. in the way that I want to be. And business and investing was my outlet so i was not going to be the person i thought i was before i started three companies out of my wheelchair all of them multi-million dollar companies and i work a lot because that's all i can do all the things that i really loved before it's not the same anymore and i i can't enjoy them anymore so it was almost therapeutic where my goal had been robbed from me of getting i set new goals and I just became obsessed with them. It, it gave me a huge sense, and that's that's the beauty and the good thing: huge sense of meaning and purpose. I needed to find a new purpose. I needed to find a new meaning, and it needed to be astronomically big because it was all I could have.
1: Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's where I'm at today. All right, man. Well, let me let me have one follow up question on that, maybe two, uh, and then we'll bump into some positive. There we go. Success. Go Anybody that's listening now, they're like, this is a downer. (laughs) I'm not listening to this anymore. No, this is real, man. Uh, Well, so what do you do? What works in terms of attitude from day to day life? What do you find that helps with the attitude, with the mentality, with the mindset? So, first of all, what I've been given, I would never want to leave. I am totally okay
0: with where I'm at. I do not feel jaded, I do not feel robbed. I do not. I'm not mad at God. I just don't have that. I was very mad in the hospital that they were keeping me alive. I thought that was cruel and unusual. I was like, why won't you let me die? Come on. (laughs) Um, uh, It was like, you're just letting me be tortured here. But obviously, very happy that that happened to everything else. So I don't have those feelings at all. I am filled with extreme gratitude. And I look at it, the cost of surviving. And the fact that I get to see my kids... Mm. is so incredibly valuable to me and that I get to do anything. So I don't mind what I have to do and, and how I really hate how it affects other people that I hate. I hate how it affects either the family, right? Or my wife that that stuff bothers me. And I don't like that. But other than that, I believe it is the price of life mm. for me. It's the cost of survival. And uh, I am willing to pay that price so I can live. And so I can do these things. I can be with my children, watch them grow. And that actually had the counter effect to where my gratitude became so extreme. And I was like, I'm never going to stop doing anything. My goals, what I want to do, I'll just never quit because I got a second chance. It changed my perspective on a lot of things there. I'm like, I'm going to go big on everything. Because why not? I'm like, i just got, got to die anyway. Yeah, yeah. And why so, not? and uh, another thing that it helped is I, I, a lot of good habits when I got out is I really stopped caring what other people think. Something about people bathing you, lying naked in a bed when you can't go to the bathroom, <laughs> but you like, your pride's just gone, gone right? Yeah. Just not at all. And two, it just like, it just didn't matter because w- I realized about three months of the hospital that looking out the window, oh, life's going on. Everybody just moved on, Right. I could die and life would just move on, yeah. right? I'm not that important in just being, having a pulse, right? But what I do is very important with the time that I have. And that's what will be left when I'm gone. So from that, it became, all right, I have this other chance. The circumstances are, uh, I want it, but life's not fair and that doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that I'm in pain. It, it, it's irrelevant. It only matters what I do. So- I became obsessed with doing and doing really big things. And I stopped caring about saying stupid things or I stopped caring about what people would think about me. Prior to that, I never did podcasts. I never did social media, nothing ever, because I would never put myself out there. After that, I didn't care. It was just irrelevant. And that was a huge gift, one that very few people get. And now that's going away. And that's hard because it's like you start to revert back to... Normal, where you do care what people think. In fact, you care a lot. And I catch myself and I'm like, hold on here. Come on here. You're doing what you're doing. You've got this shot. Be grateful. Be grateful you get to do it. So there was so much good that came out of it. The way that I look at my kids, the way that I appreciate them is like my babies. I just, they're everything. And they're so amazing. Everything they do, the stupidest stuff is just so incredible. They're so beautiful. They're so smart. And it's like, I just don't care about a lot of that kind of stuff with them anymore that either I would have cared about, or I thought this is not important. It's all important. There are stupid stories that they tell that make no sense at all, that they just ramble. Best stories ever. What do you love
1: about your wife
0: and each of your kids one by one? So my wife, I love her smile. First time I met her, she opened the door, she just had this big smile, and I just love that and uh, not to mention the fact that she stuck with me because you think my life was hell, think about hers oh. and so that's not actually common in situations like ours so divorce rate is over four or over 80 percent wow. for people that go through what we did so her resilience and her just she it, to her fault she does not care about herself just helping others And it's a total detriment that I'm like, you've got to think about you, you know, it's like, everybody's grateful that you're always thinking about other people, but you got to think about you. My daughter, Alexa, who is a spitting image of my wife, but she acts like me, which that's scary. She is a force to be reckoned with. She sticks her mind to something like she is going to take over. Like, you should all be scared. Uh, (laughs) She is absolutely incredible. She wants to do something. She's just going to do it, right? Right. My second son, who is Tristan, who is now as tall as me, which blows my mind because he's 13 years old. I've never met anyone that has a heart of gold like he does. Just absolutely caring and like true, like true care about other people's stuff. It's something that I don't think I ever had. And I look at it, and I'm just like, wow. Then my Atlas, who is my third, he is just a good looking kid, right? But he's so creative. He's into Legos. He's funny. And uh, he's just, uh, he can go in and he can build all these things. And he takes care of his little brother in a way that I never did. Like, he takes care of his little brother like they're best friends and includes him in all the stuff. Even though his little brother is four years younger than him, right? He's just such a good creative kid. And then Theo, who's the baby, he's the baby. So that's how that works. He, uh, He is our cuddler. So he always wants to be cuddled and that for me touches my love language too. So I love cuddling and holding him. And I think especially because I feel like I missed a lot of that with my other kids. So one of my biggest things that I just, for a long time, I was really upset about it was I feel like I robbed Atlas of that time because he was little. So Theo was brand new, but he was three or four. And when that happened to me, it was like, nope. It's only about dad. And I just like, I felt horrible about that forever. Like that should never happen to a child where you're literally pushed to the side because we're going to focus on dad. Like, you know, who cares? So I, I struggled with that for a long time with Atlas because I felt like I was robbing him of something, but he doesn't see it that way. In fact, it was the opposite. He was one of the bigger reasons why I'm walking today because he wanted dad, old dad. So he would say, dad, put down the cane hold me like you used to. So me in pain and leg braces would put down a cane, hold him and carry him up to bed because he wanted me to move forward and push me. So he's one of the biggest reasons that I progressed so much. Wow,
1: man. All right. Let's get to some success-based questions here. All right, As somebody who owns seven companies, rapidly growing and successful in a lot of different ways, I'd love you to restate. I'm going I'm to say the beginning of a sentence. I'd love you to restate it and then finish it. Okay. If I lost everything, so if I lost all my wealth mm-hmm. and had to start over with nothing tomorrow, here's how I'd build it back. So start with that line and then. Okay. Take so it if away. I lost everything tomorrow and had to start over
0: again, here's how I would build my wealth. I would start immediately on the front line of revenue, meaning getting revenue in the door. Me, other people, wouldn't matter. Sales, right? I would start to figure out how to produce value to the market, which is needed, and get it into people's hands. And I would go to the sources that need it, and I would start to provide those options for them. Now, that may be a lot of different things. Now, if I was talking you know, real estate, you could talk about different asset classes or different businesses that you're selling. At the end of the day, though, it's all the same.
1: Yeah.
0: And different times in different markets, there's different opportunities to execute on the same thing. But I would immediately go in and focus on the front line of the businesses and how to grow revenue. I would start my own businesses and then I would allocate those business profits into real estate. When starting my own business, it would be a cash flow generating business that would be, I would be able to scale quickly through service. That's a little more risky, but it's a way to get high margins, grow quickly, and then start allocating that cash flow into other assets. Now, there's a whole lot of things that come like do you need to survive? Do you need to get a job to pay bills, right? Everything else. But at the end of the day, I would be looking at areas to where I could build a foundation slowly that would be very sturdy that I could build something greater off of. And I would look to a lane which I could build out an ecosystem and I would dive deep into that and I would start building it out one line at a
1: time. Speaking of one at a time, how do you balance uh, personally in your business world doing one thing really, really well and just sticking with that Versus the ideas and the the you want to be vertically vertically integrate and all that stuff because I know you have seven businesses yep. I have multiple ones yep. but the common advice is just do one thing and I, I, I'm sure we're both fans of the one yep. thing that concept yes. that matters how do you balance those two things those kind of competing desires in your heart to be focused and committed but also to do a lot of stuff so a lot of my what we look at is I have a concept we call universally
0: integrated and that means that our universally integrated system is. As you vertically integrate, you have businesses that service the core, right? So it's like, all right, we have this line item of expense that is so large, we can internalize that, save money, and we don't need to. That's vertical integration. We're building it all out into our own system. We also look then at, all right, outward facing. So not just inward facing vertical in- integration, but outward facing. And we can then go out and sell products, have another line of revenue, but it is still focused around our core competencies. So we get good at one thing, we identify opportunities at our one thing that we're doing, we build out along those core competencies, and it still services the one thing that I'm doing. So our companies are all servicing the same real point what we're trying to achieve. So it it is still focused, right? They should, in theory, with vertical integration, they should compound the original source. It should benefit it to keep it moving forward. So if I'm going to do something else, it's not that I'm putting the other one beside. I want it to help it. I want it to grow it. I want it to build it. So as I'm building out these other lines of revenue, I diversify my income. I lower the risk that allows me to focus and use capital wisely on the one thing. And then it should be able to leverage that one thing to the next level. And it rounds out our actual business plan. So it looks like lots of different businesses, right? It's still around our core competencies doing the
1: same thing we're doing every day. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, I look at that as like, it is, yeah, it is still one thing. You're not yeah. focused on 50 things. It's just, you've elevated the one thing to a that's higher correct. level. It's not self-storage, exactly. but it, that is simply one business line of a one business.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Our, so if you look at our businesses, we have, property management. We have the private equity. We have architecture, development, debt brokerage. We have our property management system tech company. We have the marketing company. Then we have the educational platform, which is books, deal flow, everything else. We have our brand, which is a nationwide brand, um, which is our store local. So half of those are outward facing. All these companies that I just mentioned, I have other side companies that I've invested in, things like that, that I don't really do anything with, but all the things that are under, they, they, they go to the same thing, yeah. the ROI of the individual location. Same thing that we were doing when we started out, we had a very simple business plan when it came to storage. I said, all right, we are going to do this. We're going to buy something in a location we thought was good. We are going to make people pay the bills. And then we're going to answer the phone when people call. And that was better than most people were doing at the yes, time. is, this is prior to 2008. <laughs> so that was a very successful business model. Then you started to add things like, well, maybe we'll do a website. Maybe we start marketing online, right? Well, that was even better. And uh, everything that we're doing today still goes to that very, very simple thing. We will buy in a great location. We will operate in a way that other people can't or don't. And then from there, we will increase that revenue it's all the same thing that we're doing every day. We're rolling out different tech options. And for us, we found that the industry was consolidating rapidly. Extra Space just became the largest self-storage company in the world. And when they did the acquisition that made them the largest storage company in the world, you know what they said? Size matters. They go, it really matters to us. We need to be bigger. They're the biggest. yeah. And they said that we have to grow like yeah. this. Why? Because of their operations, their internal competitiveness ability. We knew this, and I knew that this consolidation was going to put everybody else at a disadvantage. So then we said, well, how can we act like them, get all the same things? That's when the outward facing part of the integration works. Because me, with our portfolio, which is nothing compared to the big boys, like you're talking about. It's just unreal how much real estate these guys own, right? How many do or the REITs do, these publicly traded companies. Well, if we took independent operators and we created systems that made them do better, we would do better. And as a group, we're actually way bigger than the REITs. And we could use that power, that buying, that leverage, that technology. And then my stores can compete with the REITs. And so that's what we did. So it was still designed around that, increasing the ROI per location. And that's what that's what we do great. We're revenue focused. Revenue centered general. I want to do everything to expand and grow that revenue. It's what we always say, the asset comes first. I don't worry about everything else, investors, all that kind of stuff, because at the end of the day if the asset does good, we will all be well, fine. Man, yeah. If we don't if we're if our core competencies aren't aligned with that, we're done. Yeah. And two, my time frame of expectation is not on the time frame of anybody else. It's not on my time frame. It's not on investors. Ever. It's not. Any, it's on the assets' time frame. Meaning that we don't put ourselves in a bad position to where timing's off and we're going bankrupt or we have to refinance or we're getting in trouble. Right. We don't want to do that because we want to put a, f- a structure on those assets that allows all our businesses to be operating in unison and build up that revenue. So it's a long-term strategy with lots of legs that are separate businesses that are both inward and outward facing. All that just comes out still that just one thing, what we're trying to do. How do you lead? Like how's your leadership style? What do you do? Mostly I just send nasty emails. Um, <laughs> and uh, What else do you need? I mean, that's it. Just yeah, like. there you go. So every leader has big, I think, pros and big cons. So if you're a great leader you're really good at usually a few things, but you're really bad at other things. And that extreme ex- extremity is, is usually pretty big. For me, when we were part of a growing organization and building, the the problem with having everything vertically integrated meant we have all these people. We're so niched. We we just do this one thing and we do it all that it means we're managing, we're coordinating, and our employees were, were growing massively. And all of a sudden, we were growing all of these people. And- then I hit levels to where I didn't eat, I didn't even know what I was doing. Like I'd never ran an organization like that. And there's a time that comes into when you're starting out that all the things that we think about in business and read, right, those are what you focus on. You focus on the strategy, but then as you grow, there becomes a time that the leader can't focus really on that anymore. They just need to focus on the people. That's it. Yeah. I just need to get the best people, the brightest people, Right. And I've been going through a transition of that, where now it is focused on getting and operating and managing the best people, and that comes with having a counterbalance. I need people that are really good at the things that are bad. I need them to be empowered to do their thing. I do not micromanage. I don't want to. I don't have the time to. We need to trust in those employees, and our team has needs that buy-in, and they do. Our organization has buy-in. We have very little turnover over our corporate office. It just doesn't really happen because they're all bought into the mission. And uh, that's what I think my leadership style is trying to bring everybody together on a mission, show how important it is, but then finding key talent that can do that integration and that execution on the details and the follow-through that changes when you get to a big organization. And we've stumbled and I failed as a leadership when we actually, one of the big things that I just absolutely screwed the pooch on. I mean, I just failed. I thought, oh, okay, a big organization means middle management.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: So we said, we're going to build out these middle management. Why? Because I wanted to do it so it would help me. I'm tired of doing so much. I want to go do the other thing. So let's do this and you guys will take care of everything. What had actually happened was we separated the groundwork from the leadership with middle management. And we stopped seeing problems that we're going through. We stopped being able to be effective downward and it didn't work. It was just a total failure as a leadership on my part. So then we got rid of all the middle management. We went back and we started focusing on a totally unique structure. And as a leader, that's embarrassing for me to my people, right? Because I'm like, oh, they look up to me. I'm supposed to have those answers, right? I think that if you are a leader, you need to understand, your people need to understand that you're not perfect, you're going to fail. We're trying to move forward. But even with that, my people all, my mess ups and my shortcomings, people stayed. They not only stayed, they improved, they wanted to do better, and they pitched in. Everybody jumped in, right, to help. And that's what I want as a leader. I want a team. I want a community. I want all of us going that if one person fails, other people jump in to help, and that they're all aligned in the mission
1: for the right reasons. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to shift gears here and head over up. to the next segment of our show, which we are, this is the first time I pulled up this segment. We're calling it the three, Uh, I've been, right. it used to be called like the three, three, three 3 3 or whatever, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm experimenting on different segments. So you okay. guys to be my uh Test bunny, is that the phrase? What's the test Test dummy. dummy. That that fits. So this is going to work out great. I'm I'm excited about this. All right. The three, two, one goes like this. We're going to start three books that have changed you, two people you look up to, and one quote you live by. So let's start with three books that have changed you. What I call a pivot book. Your life's going one direction. You read something, a book, or maybe it could be a podcast or whatever, I suppose, but you read something and it pivots your life a little bit. So what are those three books that have pivoted your life? First book, The Warren Buffett Way. Um,
0: I read the Warren Buffett way when I was really young in college and it blew my mind. I've read each reversion. I will always reread it. And it was this idea of ownership, investing, operations, being a leader, and they break it down into subject. So I could go in and I could look at the subject and I, it's hard to even understand what it was still to this day. I read it and I'm like, this is incredible.
1: Awesome. Two more.
0: So the next book, I, I think you have to classically. When I was younger, throw in rich dad poor dad sure. because I think that's a lot of our first introductions, right, to sure. that kind of stuff. And it, that that was, I think, e- prior to the War Buffett way, a, a younger version of reading that and going, oh, like you don't know what you don't know, and it's like I didn't really realize this world and that that introduction. And then my third book, I think, would be. That's hard. Now I got to limit it down to one. <laughs> I've got like 10 books here that, I, yep. I, that I'm looking through and I'm like trying to think of, God, man, there's so many. This is, this is, you put me on the spot. This I know. Is tough. Honestly, I think if I was one that I've really gone a lot to, Ray Dalio's probably principles. Uh, not is principles, but changing world, changing world, um, changing world, world order, order yeah. where it just helped bring it out and have a really good understanding of I'm a big macroeconomics guy. I went to school. I studied it during 2008. I lived through that time. I invested in owned businesses during 2008. Uh, We never lost a property, but it was so early on in my business world and journey, and there was so much risk. It really shaped me. I went back to get my MBA. I wasn't ever going to get paid for it. No money, nothing. I just was like, I don't understand what's happening. I need to learn. And I saw how the economy and macroeconomics are affected and people were just blown away by They there was nothing they could even do. And I was like, I need to understand what's going on and why, because I don't want to be in that position. And so that was one of, I just love that book. Everyone should read it. Amazing. All right. Two people you look up to. All right. Two people that I look up to. First, my dad, he's my hero. He's a great dude. Dude, a great dude. I love dude. That, right? that guy. He yeah. is so amazing. He's my mentor my best friend my business partner and i've me and my dad have been working together since you know i can remember i you know i used to work on farms and do physical labor all that kind of stuff but some people it works other people it does not and with me and my dad it just works i can't imagine having a business partner and creating businesses besides him other than that i think i'd probably have to say Ken McElroy's a big one. Yeah, He's been a huge, he's been kind of my, one of my mentors and I being able to work with him and his ability to see things, especially during hard times as the company has grown really big and a lot of these leadership styles, right? He's the one that called and he's like, okay, yeah, you're doing it, doing it wrong, you idiot. I'm like, okay, well, how should I do it? Right. Yeah, I had that conversation, conversation
1: with him too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yep. Exactly. Yep. We, we all do. And it was <laughs> totally enlightening and yep. he just. Told me this is what you need to do, this is how you need to do. I implemented it and yeah. it, it works. So very
1: grateful for that. Yeah, same thing here. And then
0: last one, is there a quote
1: that you live by or a favorite quote?
0: Yeah. So I don't even have it memorized, but it's the man in the ring. Oh, and yeah, yeah. somebody Is that Theodore Roosevelt's Theodore Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, like yep. the, yeah, the man in thing. the ring, And it talks about the man in the ring who's who's fighting and the crowd is watching. And they're booing and cheering, right? Yeah, yeah, And he talks about how they're booing and cheering. None of them matter. It doesn't matter. It's the man in the ring. You're fighting the fight. And somebody, a friend of mine, gave that to me while I was in the hospital and was like, you're the man in the ring. Don't worry about everything else, the glory of what you do. And, and it just, I think it, it put things in perspective because lots of times, especially in a world of judgment, and especially when you're an entrepreneur- and your failures and successes are public, people love to pick them apart. And it's weird that we spend time listening to people that pick apart something that you did that have no relevance whatsoever on anything. And for some reason that the crowd cheering or booing that aren't even in fighting or whatnot has an effect. And it's something that I try to just remind myself that it's like
1: focus on the fight, focus on what we're doing. Here's the, I'll, I'll read it here. I'll pull it up. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strides valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Theodore Roosevelt.
0: I just, I love that. I love yeah. thinking about it. And the idea that the man in the ring, even if he failed, yeah. that's
1: the glories to him. And yeah. He did it. And I think that's important. I love it. All right. Next segment of the show, All we right. call it past, present, future. Ooh. If you can give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? That's your past buy Bitcoin at like one <laughs> cent. Like, I think that
0: there we go. That would do it. And Check. buy everything you can take loans out and, and just kidding. Um, so one piece of advice that I could give to my younger self would be that the journey can't be done alone mm-hmm. and you need to search out. And the biggest impact on everything in life will be the others that you surround yourself
1: with. So choose very, very carefully. Great one. What is your biggest goal right now? That's present. What is your goal? What is your biggest goal right now? So we have this thing that we call
0: saving capitalism. And it actually, we changed my podcast into it. The whole idea behind this was that we wanted to create a system. And I made this while I was in the hospital. I was, it was Christmas Eve. I was going to go home the next day to see my kids open present presence. The hospital was going to take me. They were going to then bring me back, but it was my first time I was going to get to go home. I was so excited. I'd been fired. I wasn't worried about losing the house. And I knew my, my wife was going to spoil the kids. And I thought this is so much more important than money. This is so much more. And I was so overcome with gratitude. And it was like, I need to teach this and allow other people to do it too. And so the idea of the company is that we create a vehicle by which Everyone can participate in the fruits and benefits of capitalism. And we save capitalism one person at a time. It's not a political thing. It's that every person that comes in and participates in the benefits and the fruits of capitalism, capitalism is saved for them. And uh, you save capitalism by putting people into it, not out of it. And the problem we have today is there's not enough people that are participating. The barriers are too high. The walls are too high. The education isn't there. I want to break that down. And my wife has done that from schooling. We've done that through educations. We've done that. We were trying to, everything that we can do is to get people into the system. And that is my mission. I think that everyone needs to participate, not stocks, bonds. I want them to participate into real assets, real
1: economic benefits. Yeah, powerful, man. Next one, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh,
0: That when I leave the world, that people remember me as, um, I think, first and foremost, a family man who loved his kids, loved his wife, and that someone that had a larger purpose besides himself, and that people will look back on that, and it won't be defined necessarily on individual wins, failures, anything else like that. But what I had left behind that others get
1: to benefit from. Beautiful. What is something that you've implemented recently in your life that's giving you a better life? This is a tough one because I feel like there's
0: all these things and mm-hmm. it's like, which, which, one, which one's the best? I think, honestly, I'd have to say that we've had a bunch of new hires in my company and having those people, both in the quality of them and everything, it's helped us level up and me not feel like I was alone on the journey. Mm -hmm. And that helped me at home. That helped me at work. And I think that applies to everything, not just at work. I think that the same thing, leveling up is to go out and find the experts, go find the people and rely on others instead of my own doing thinking that i need to do everything or being and that just realization or whatnot is has changed my life and since the hospital i've had to rely on was everyone to do everything and so as i implemented that more in my work that's just huge huge
1: difference that's great man so maybe a good question for the audience today uh, of everyone listening is ask them the question who do you need to hire that you can bring in that'll give you a better life maybe that's 100%. a good uh, good question to uh, meditate on today that said, we're going to get out of here now. So my final question of the day, AJ, where do people connect with you at best?
0: So you can go to Instagram, our websites, the company's selfstorageincome.com for everything self-storage. And then Cedar Creek Capital is our company, but AJ Osborne Instagram, it's pretty easy to find me just Google. Is so that Osborne, Osborne with an E or no E at the end? With an E, no with U. With an E. That's right. No you, no you with not, an E. Not like Ozzy. No no relation. There's so. no U in Osborne. Nope. Right. Nope. That's right. The right way to do it is there's no U in Osborne and there is an E. Yeah. Sorry for all you other Osbornes. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you very much. You're a rock star. Thank Thanks, you. Man. appreciate it.
1: And that is the show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of A Better Life with Brandon Turner. I hope you enjoyed the insights and the wisdom uh, brought to you today on the show. If you found value in this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Your feedback actually does help us improve the show. We look at the feedback. I look at the feedback. And we can reach more people with our message of living a better life. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social, Beardy Brandon. And hey, before I go, this show is all about the habits, actions, and beliefs that can give you a better life. But in case you're interested and you want to know my opinion on what it takes to live the best life ever, and that includes some of my kind of weird spiritual beliefs maybe, check out abetterlife.com slash best life. abetterlife.com slash best life. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time on A Better Life with Brandon Turner.